Hills, the Indigo, the Crystal Palace, go-kart joint on Copper Ave, uh, AA meeting off the 40. His buddies, Beaver and what's his name? Uh, Badger and Skinny Pete. Yeah, I know. He's now with them. They could be covering for him. I posed as a meter reader. I put a bug on the tall kid's mom's place. For three hours straight, all they talked about was something called Babylon 5. This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 70 of the audio guide to Babylon 5, The Long Night. In times past on this podcast, we have had reason to comment on the caliber of the guest performers in any given episode. I think we'll have something to say about this one. (laughs) I don't doubt that that is the case. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Wow. Steven's face when he saw the name in the credits was like, what? He laughed out loud. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Brian Cranston plays uh, Ranger Captain Erickson, who has a very unfortunate fate in this episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those of you who are ever so slightly familiar with modern pop culture and television, know that he is the star of one of the most groundbreaking and critically acclaimed uh, and fairly popular uh, television series ever, uh, which is Breaking Bad, in which he plays a character who is entirely not (laughs) Ranger Captain Erickson. Not exactly (laughs) noble, not exactly hairy, it was it, it was fascinating to see this guy in here. I he has a recent memoir, uh, and I was thumbing through it in the bookstore. Not a single mention of Babylon Five. I'm just Aww. personally offended by that. Apparently, <laughs> I'm, suddenly, I'm suddenly glad I never watched Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, yes. he had other bigger roles around this time that made more of an impression of him. I, I'm just. Uh, I'm just what I'm has. just a little offended. I'm not offended. <laughs> it really wasn't that big a role, but uh, we'll talk about how he did. Um, but that's the that's the curiosity in this episode that nobody would have paid much attention to back when this originally aired. Mm-hmm. Any opening thoughts about uh, about this episode before we launch into our synopses and get into the meat of the thing? Just that we are we are still rolling along serialized television and things just keep building. And I will I will give a little uh, a tiny spoiler for for the Stephen check in. Uh, when it finished, Stephen said that this was one of the best episodes of Babylon Five ever. Okay then. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say he's not wrong, but I'll I'll, I'll be curious <laughs> to wonder what what kinds of things made it such an impression on him. But mm-hmm. that's a great tease, um, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, this one felt like a break to me from the serialized uh, go, 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 go stuff. I noticed this time that they were sticking with, you know, sort of like one part of the storyline for longer chunks, which I think was a great help in making it feel like things had slowed down slightly. And we had more proper character moments this time around. Again, yes. And Mm -hmm. I I thought thought that it, it it was sort of a relief to me. This felt like a return to form almost, even even yeah. though mm-hmm. you're, with your point, Derica, it is a, mm-hmm. it is still 
very serialized. Here's the next thing. Here's the next thing. Right. Um, and I mean, the- there's a definitely a difference between serialized and, you know, frenetic in pacing. There's there's definitely still there's no character of the week or monster of the week or bad guy of the week. I mean, there's 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 nothing in this episode really that that is is non-serialized. It's all part of the the main plot, but it is definitely more Babylon 5e in terms of the way that the characters interact. It's not quite as fast-paced as the previous one, which which I agree is is p- probably part of what makes it a, a better episode in Steven's eyes because it feels like Babylon 5, but it's still 100% serial Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's uh, let's dive in. Uh, previously on Babylon 5, all-out war has broken out between the Vorlons and the Shadows, with the entire rest of the galaxy stuck in the crossfire. The Vorlons are destroying entire planets with shadow influence, which is bad news for Centauri Prime, given that Mad Emperor Cartagia is harboring shadow vessels there, fully expecting its destruction to make him a living god. Cuckoo banana pants. That's enough for Londo and Veer to plot to kill him, luring him off-world to Narn where he's vulnerable. Meanwhile, Captain Sheridan is making plans to end the Shadow War at the head of the greatest fleet in history, but he's not telling anyone how. He just seems to be taking an awful lot of advice from the oldest living being in the galaxy. That brings us to The Long Night. In this episode... The greatest fleet in history is almost assembled, but the Shadows are now retaliating against the Vorlons' attacks. Both sides are now eradicating planets and colonies aligned with the other, but not quite directly taking each other on. Londo's conspiracy takes shape, as he and Veer now have allies planning to help them kill Cartagia after Jakar creates a distraction at his trial. This, Jakar does, but the killing blow is delivered by none other than Veer, who is guilt-ridden afterward. Meanwhile, Sheridan and Delenn show the League of Non-Aligned Worlds scenes of the Shadow's devastation and announce their plan. Sheridan will sacrifice a White Star crew to lure the Shadows into a confrontation at the Vorlon's next target, Coriana 6, and the League fleet will also be there to do... something. And that is how uh, the long night wraps up, leading into what we assume is going to be a big episode. Mm-hmm. Indeed, kind of a momentous ending to the episode. Let's 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 begin at the ending, which is an adequate place to start. The Sinclair fanboy in me just has a nice little moment when Sheridan mm-hmm. talks about his predecessor having left a, a quote from Tennyson there as he and Delenn are leaving and the fleet's getting ready to move out. This episode ends with a momentous feeling, I think. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that Sheridan says, someone left it on my desk. Like he doesn't actually call out that it was, it wasn't signed or anything. He just found a poem on his desk. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, my predecessor or my predecessor, Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, Mm -hmm. that, that stuff. We talked about the pacing and there is still uh, some info dumpy stuff happening to oh, help yeah. out to help out the mm-hmm. people who missed the last episode. But I think name checking a character that that appeared three seasons ago was possibly a step too far. Maybe I don't know. To me, it just like it pulled me out of it for a second to be like, well, who left it there? Is this supposed to be some other mystery we're going to unravel? Mm-hmm. Just the 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 genericness of someone uh, that that word sort of 
I don't know. And maybe maybe it would have been the opposite if they if he would have said, you know, my predecessor would have taken somebody else out of it because they would have been thinking about something different. But yeah, it uh, it threw me. That was that was one tiny little dialogue choice that really tossed me out of the story for a sec. And then I had trouble like getting back into it and focusing on the poem itself. So that mm. kind of zipped by me. Well, for me, it was the fact that, you know, it was established that Sinclair was nuts for Tennyson. So right. it's a it's a nice little, I guess, an Easter egg maybe <laughs> yeah yeah more of an easter egg because like like you said the the last time we've seen sinclair was in the middle of last season and that was just you know long enough for him to go by and disappear a thousand years into the past <laughs> so for for people who've just just been watching recently <laughs> I, I think it would you know name checking somebody that they've that they personally haven't heard of because they haven't been watching long enough um mm-hmm. could be a derailment that's the way the line should have gone When I first arrived on Babylon 5, I found a note from my predecessor, Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, who went 1,000 years into the past and became (laughs) the Mimbari. Stop, 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 (laughs) stop, Bad chip. I'll be good. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's the end of of the episode. The beginning of the episode with Sheridan, uh, though, some, some interesting stuff going on there. On the bridge, he's talking about... Then you know the either either this fleet's going to get just chewed up and sped out, or it's going to be the dawn of a new age. This is a guy who never talks about something being the dawn of a new age before. What's with that? You know, I I feel like it was it was sort of like it, that's probably sort of been building up in his his subconscious for a while because he's been surrounded by Vorlons and Minbari, and now he's you know he's dating one or engaged to one, um, and. You know, I do feel like Lorien, this, you know, ancient, ancient first one, is probably the the straw that broke the camel's back or, or sort of turned the key. But I personally don't want to ascribe all of this change to Lorien. I, I feel like it's more Lorien helped Sheridan open his eyes to the, the way of seeing the universe that, that Delenn has always had. That's, that's yeah, kind of my I, reading of it. Yeah. In, in, my, in my view, um, we've seen... The fact that the, back in um, Zahadum, the, the shadows tried to show Sheridan, you know, that the, their side. Yes, this has been going on for a long time. We've been doing this every thousand years or so. We have the evidence of um, the Babylon 4 situation. Um, and again, you know, Sheridan's been trained by Kosh. Uh, so there's been a lot of influences to bring him to the point of realizing this. And I think even whenever Sheridan actually, the summoning, when Sheridan comes back the first time, and, you know, in his speech, as he starts rallying the troops, he's, you know, like, you know, we can, we can end this, not for now, not for a thousand years from now, but for all time. So it didn't jar me that much. I feel like this idea that he, that if they pull this off, that they could very well be changing the face of the galaxy permanently. I think that's been in his mind for a while now. So mm-hmm. it didn't yeah, bother I mean, me as much. Yeah, I think the, the, the most surprising thing is probably the poetic nature of the way that he states it because that really hasn't been his way of talking he's he's a soldier Uh, so I wonder if he's you know for me personally when I spend a lot of time with someone or a group of people I have a tendency to absorb and sponge up the speech patterns of those people that I'm around and I feel like maybe Sheridan has done that to to a certain extent because when you look at it logically and and think about this, you know, if they are able to somehow do something that that beats or bats down or, you know, 
causes to go into hiding or something. These ancient first ones who have been, you know, running the galaxy for for who knows how long, then it really will be a new age. Like that's that's the you know the kids are are growing up and leaving the nest and you know using their wings to fly without mom and dad paying attention anymore. So that's that's sort of my take. We've got these opening monologues that have been going on the show um, in the in the opening credits. And we had in season one, we had Sinclair saying that this was the, it was the dawn of the third age of mankind. Uh, season two, Sheridan says it was the dawn of the third age of mankind. The year the Great War came upon us all. Um Season three, we get a little bit of a miss because we're busy watching uh, Star Fury shoot down Star Furies. <laughs> and then uh, season four, we have uh, Londo saying, it was a new age. Stephen Franklin, it was the end of history. Susan Ivanova, it was the year everything changed. When I hear Sheridan say, this could be the dawn of a new age, four <laughs> years of watching Babylon 5 to this point uh, just sort of pings my radar a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of that, that, that opening, um, you know, we get these lovely voiceovers and then we jump right into Sheridan starting with a captain's log doing an actual voiceover, which, and I, I I liked it because it felt like a kind of a sort of a smoother way to open things up and do the info dump than the very next scene where we have Ivanova and Sheridan talking to each other in CNC, which is like poor poor Claudia Christian's like first lines there are the biggest recap info dump delivered so quickly <laughs> it was just it was it was kind of a mess it was kind of a mess i really wish they had figured out another way to do that or you could you could see the as you know bob from space yeah, I know. yeah. oh boy yeah and then of course it's very nice and symmetrical his voiceover with the uh, with his voiceover at the end which we've we've already mentioned. And that was one thing that Stephen Stephen quite liked was the uh ending uh, voiceover from Sheridan his his last captain's log over the shot of all of these ships in space going off to do something as you said. Mm-hmm. We get after that kind of cringeworthy exposition dump of a scene, <laughs> we get a much better one with uh, Sheridan and Ivanova, uh, a, a mm-hmm. scene that I've been sort of wishing for for a long time, you know, giving giving Claudia a little bit more to do as an actress and a real one of those real strong character moments that we've been sort of waiting for since season four started. I love this scene so much. And and I'm going to actually steal something that Steven said because I completely echo it. He was was saying that in that scene, Claudia Christian, as you said, Chip, has something to do. And she was just – she was amazing. She was so natural. It wasn't – the camera stayed on her pretty much the whole time she's telling that story. It doesn't have any info dump or kind of storytelling reveal. It is simply just a story, a character moment. And as Steven said, she was very, very natural. It just felt so, so smooth. Like we are, we are watching this character be this character and that's all that's happening. And the lighting in the scene is really great. And yeah, that was, I loved that. I mean, there are a lot of good character moments in this episode. So it's not like I can really pick a favorite, but this is, this is one of the many that I just adore. I'll admit, I I had to sort of get back into that scene a bit. Um, It jarred me when she said uh, that she's been dreaming about leading a fleet all her life. Because of just, you know, I don't know. 
I, I did not have the impression, and I'm not sure how whether this properly belongs in spoiler space or not, but I did not have the impression that she that the military was her first choice. So that jarred me slightly. That felt slightly out of character to me. But then to go on and talk about her childhood, the things that we know about her with um, her telepath mother, um, getting the details of, of when her mom committed suicide, uh, that rang true. But it took me a minute to get back into that scene. My impression was that because she followed her brother into the military against the wishes of her father, that it really was something that was close to her heart and that was something that she really wanted to do. Um, I didn't get the impression that she was following her brother out of some sense of brotheristic loyalty or something, you know, fraternal, I guess that's the word I was searching for there. Um, <laughs> but but just because that was a thing that she wanted to do, um, because otherwise, why defy her father at that point? I don't know. Maybe maybe I was reading it backwards. I'll tell you the thing that I valued the most about this scene was the one soldier to another, the immense respect that these two people have for each other as friends and professionals, the promise that Sheridan makes, and, and you know that he's making that prom promise both as a friend and as a soldier, the way they talk to each other warmly and then they seal off and wrap, wrap up the conversation as captain and commander. You know, there are very few examples of strong professional friendships without a hint of sexual tension or anything like that between a, a male character and a female character like that. Just pulling this out of thin air, I believe if you go back to Star Trek Voyager, there were occasional hints of something between Captain Janeway and her first officer Chicote, you you <laughs> don't see this, and in B five between Ivanova and her commanders, what you see in this scene is just really really powerful and and kind of noble, and it's it that should be the default. It shouldn't be so um, unusual. I think. Here, here, yep. Okay, so those were character moments, and then we get uh, a big scene. It's not immediately seen, immediately next, but uh, I'm saving uh, Centauri, uh, the Centauri and Narn stuff for the end. We get the scene in the war room where the plan is laid out, and Ranger Captain Erickson is asked to make a big sacrifice. And I wanted to get your read on how that scene worked both in terms of plot and in terms of performance. Well, in, in terms of plot, you know, it it makes sense, you know, that Sheridan would come up with a plan, some way to lure the shadows to the position he wants them to be at. You know, that's the military strategist all over. But on the other hand, I, I don't remember now how many times I've watched this episode, and it is a 100% streak that it gets me crying every single time. <laughs> every single time. The, the the latter part where he where he directs Erickson to exactly just what they have to do um and what they have to give up. You know, the intellectually I I know, you know, there's in, in times of conflict in times of war, in times of, of conflict like this, that such things have to be asked of people uh that, you know, are willing to do it. 
And it still punches me in the gut every single time when it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was. And Stephen, thank goodness, was also blown away by that scene because I'm afraid we would have to get divorced if he hadn't been. So (laughs) he was kind of just gobsmacked at the end of it and was just uh, that he thought that um, that it was really the the acting and the direction in that scene that that made it so amazing. But I also think it was it was the writing to to some extent because oh you get that moment where um, Erickson misunderstands what right. Sheridan is asking them to right. do. He says, "Don't worry, you know we won't let it fall into the wrong hands." And <laughs> oh, and everybody else in the room face. starts looking at each other because they know what's coming. Mm-hmm. I know everybody gets so uncomfortable, and mm-hmm. I mean, even under all of that, uh, those prosthetics and and the masks and stuff, you can still see that that even the extras in that scene are pulling their weight and and really understanding what is happening here. So from the beginning of that scene, where you have everybody sort of being like, "What what the hell? Why would you want the shadows to show up?" to the explanations and, and this point, um, it's I feel like it just gets stronger and stronger until you have the coup de gras from Brian Cranston at the end, his his reaction. And you can watch him taking it in and, you know, making the decision that this is this is the right thing to do. It is worth the sacrifice of my life and my and my crew. And Stephen said that, wow, Brian Cranston just did a great job. You can tell even at this point that he is an actor that is going to go on to big things. And and I, I agree. He 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 stands out. We've got We've gotten some really nice guest stars in Babylon 5. We've gotten some really terrible ones. But mm-hmm. I feel like very few of them are given the chance to show this kind of gravitas. And Brian Cranston just flies away with it. Yeah, and not just Cranston, but Sheridan as well. I mean, yes. you, you see Bruce Box Leitner is amazing in this sequence, showing us, you know, the the conflict of a commanding officer in an army. This thing must be done. Dear God, I don't want to do this thing. Um, that that he he play he plays it so well, showing that if you know, I think it's even a line. And if there was any other way he could figure out to to pull this off, he would have taken it. But he can't, and he must ask these soldiers for the ultimate sacrifice in order in order to pull this off. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be slightly cold hearted. Um, okay, bring it on. <laughs> no, I think that this is a good scene and a powerful scene. Uh, only slightly cold-hearted. We've seen since Sheridan came back from Zahadum that he is different. He is changed. Um, he is rallying a rev- kind of a revolution from the from the balcony. Uh, he is ordering out a hit on. The Vorlon ambassador, you know, these are not things that he would have necessarily done before Zahadum. He seems mm-hmm. driven, and he seems to have a mission, and he seems willing to make difficult decisions, um, or the circumstances are forcing him to make uh, decisions like this. He's never had to order someone explicitly to their deaths before he's sent out he sent out fighter wings to defend the station and things like that and said do not fire until fired upon but he's never sent somebody out expressly to die before so this this is a more dangerous sheridan and yet every time jms has sheridan do something 
tough like this or declaring, you know, declaring independence and sending his station and his, his allied ships up against his own people. There's always that moment. Get to the life pods, get to the life pods. Or you're not a married man, are you, Erickson? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's those little moments like that that are indicate that are clearly designed to indicate that he is not comfortable. He is not a megalomaniac. He feels. He feels right. And mm-hmm. I think that it's a bit too far. I think that moment when he asks, "You're not married, are you, Erickson?" That tips it just a little too far for me in terms of professionalism and duty and honor and all that stuff. There's not that moment where you're. If he said, if, if if Erickson said, yeah, I've got a wife and kids back home, would Sheridan be go- going backseas or anything? He doesn't know this guy, you know. It's well. My thought was, if he ha- if he did have a wife and children, he would have asked him, you know, you know, what can we do for them, or we'll get in touch with them right away, because he does say yeah. that later too. Yeah. Yeah, what can we do for you and your crew? On balance, um, this is a really good moment and it's a really good scene, but there that there is that tendency that JMS has to try to make sure that you think of Sheridan as a good guy even as he's having to make these awful decisions that I think is a little unnecessary. Um, I could see that. Uh, I I could see that potentially. I I don't mind that that exchange is there, but I can see your point. Yeah, I I don't think the scene would have lost very much if if those lines were to be were to be cut out i think i think it all it does is is as you say it softens it softens sheridan a little bit which i'm i'm okay with that i i don't mind i don't mind being reminded that we this is still our sheridan that he has changed but he's but he's still our guy he's still a good guy um mm-hmm. i think that that's a, i think that's the point of that is everybody john sheridan's a good guy he still feels <laughs> I, I I have enough confidence in the character that I think he feels he, without him having to ask that question. But that's that, that's just me yeah. being somewhat stonehearted. Sorry. <laughs> Any final comments on the Shadow War side of the equation before we dive into? Uh, I keep wanting to call it the Centauri Prime Heart, but no, it's it, this is this is happening on Narn now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't you tell by the red light? <laughs> Steve, when we had that first scene, Stephen goes, "Narnia is a very red planet." Wait, is it called Narnia? He's like, no. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but that's that's what he's calling it from here on in. So just oh, be dear. ready for that. Awesome, mm-hmm. awesome. Looking forward to that next uh, guest appearance by him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's really kind of, uh, Dr. Who-ish in, uh, trying to make, do a lot with very little money. Um, the street oh, yeah. scene, the, the street scene on Narn, which is very clearly a tiny soundstage with a lot of red light. So you can't really see anything that's going on. Um, the B, B, the B5 budget is showing itself a little bit. Yes. How mm-hmm. nice of them to remake the throne room for me. <laughs> no. Stephen laughed out loud at that after a moment because it took him a second. He's like, oh, I just realized the reason it looks exactly the same is because it's exactly the same set. Yes. <laughs> but, they, but they've done that before. They, they actually yep. set that up for us in the Rock Cried Out No Hiding Place. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. Yep. So it's not completely, it's not completely BS. 
Right. No. And I mean, I honestly, yeah. I feel like that is that is a sort of Doctor Who-ish Blake 7 sort of, you know, money saving thing that works perfectly well. You know, mm-hmm. use the use the same set, just change the lighting. And yes. yeah, works for me. I'm fine and, with it. And, and I will admit that I, I, ca- I cackled slightly at the meta this time around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's. It's not a really good thing for job security to be a jester in the Cartaceous court, is it? Oof. Yikes. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, I and I think that was rather brilliant to to have some space in between. I just for me it seemed to emphasize just how banana pants um Cartagia is that, you know, like at the time there's the long, long beat and you are certain that he's going to order off with his head to that poor jester and then he starts dancing. And then it's like two or three scenes later and the jester's being dragged away. It's like that just it, yep. that felt more chilling to me to have that extra um beat to the sequence, so to speak. Yeah. I completely agree because then you can never really be, you know, on on balance. You're always on your heels with this guy because you don't necessarily know if his reaction to what you're doing or saying is actually going to last for more than a few minutes at a time. So I, I, I agree. This makes him feel all the more unhinged. He is a narcissistic psychopath. And that moment when he is pretending to be amused by the jester and they start dancing together. Uh, now, see, I think he was still genuine. I think he was genuinely amused. That's what chilled it for me. Like, you know, at that point, he oh, thinks it's funny. And, no. two, you know, like five minutes later, it's not funny anymore. Humor is so subjective. I, I really think that there was another interaction that tipped him over. I, I that was disagree. my interpretation. I disagree. Uh, that jester was a dead man squeaking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of how I read it. That he wasn't really uh, thinking that it was funny, but he was like a cat toying with a mouse, being like, "I am going to pretend that I am I am okay with this for a while until it no longer amuses me, and then off with his head." Mm. Meanwhile, we have the uh, scene in the jail cell where Londo discovers that uh, Jakar is seeing simultaneously more and less clearly. Mm-hmm. And yet another great scene um, sticking uh, Londo and Jakar in close quarters. Yep. It's every gold. time. It's gold every time. It really <laughs> is. And especially with that. <laughs> the fact that we've got the Narnia lighting there—that uh, was—that was another thing that that, that Stephen just uh, just loved. He—that's actually one of now one of his favorite scenes in all of Babylon Five because of in part because of the the acting and, and the writing, but the direction too. It was a uh, you know that the lighting is different. They're they're finally whispering. Like I know Shannon mm-hmm. kept mentioning before how yeah. loud they're talking with guards right outside the door, and and so you get these nice intimate intense close-ups on each one of their faces so you really get the nuance of of their performances which is a wonderful thing coming from andreas katsulis because he's got so much makeup on the fact that you can still get the nuance out of his performance is is a wonderful wonderful thing and yeah that that scene was was just i mean it was chilling in its own way it was it was mm-hmm. it was really good yeah agreed just to to have jakar you know, he, he's been turning profit in the previous season, but now it's, you know, feels just like it's sort of like p- fully burst forth. And, and now it's Londo's turn to, to, to get the brunt of it, to, you know, for Jakar to turn around and say, you know, your heart is empty. 
which is something we've been seeing happening to Londo over the course of the show. And Jakar only needs two seconds at this point to look at him and, and point out, you know, that, that Londo is not going to be happy when, you know, if when he pulls off um, assassinating Cartagia and saving the planet. That's, that's not going to make it all better for Londo, because he's still got to live with the aftermath of what his decisions have led, uh, that, that the fact that his decisions have led to this. Like you said, put those two together. Close quarters, nobody between them, mm-hmm. nobody mm-hmm. interfering with them, and, you know, oh my God. Londo's Gold. emptiness is a theme throughout the episode. He and Veer have a crew of conspirators now, co-conspirators, mm-hmm. and they're not at all happy with the fact that Londo helped put them in this mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister Malachi could have uh, kept the brakes yeah. on, but Rifa killed him and yeah. Londo and says a- and Londo says that you know there when I die there will be a reckoning but now is not the time and yeah. then after the assassination uh when he and Veer are uh, debriefing in a sense and uh <laughs> and Londo admits that he envies Veer because Veer still has good inside him and is mm-hmm. upset at what he'd done and Londo just doesn't have anything in there. This whole episode is uh could have been subtitled How Awful It Is to Be Londo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the scene with uh with him and Veer, one of the things that I really noticed was this illustrated to me how far Londo has come from that sort of drunken buffoon in the first season. And it was specifically the line where sort of, you know, Veer is drunk and he, you know, Londo says, you're drunk. And, and he's, I'm Sabsa. Oh, you betcha. Which, yeah. you know, that was, that was fun. But, but the line that really, that really sold it for me was like, you know, it always worked for you. And mm-hmm. I immediately flashed back to, sure enough, yeah, we did have Londo, you know, d- drinking off his, his sorrows quite a bit in the first season. And the pic- that picture of, of him in season one does not match at all with where he has come to, except that, you know, we saw the transition. So it's not like it was a sudden unearned change. It's totally earned. Right. But boy, has he come a long way because looking at his reaction to Veer's reaction is he's just this, you know, kind of a grumpy, stoic, we need to do what we need to do. And and I no longer have time for drinking or or feelings or any of that. It it just it really made a very stark difference between these two characters and between Londo currently and Londo previously, which I thought was very effective. Probably one of the more effective things in in that scene because I don't know that Stephen First's drunk acting was hundred percent on point it wasn't bad it was it was amusing i liked it it was it was a little goofy i thought i i thought he was uh, it worked for me because i thought stephen first was being just he he totally inhabited veer's character in that scene and like i could see you know drunk veer that that would be a drunken veer that's what he acts like to me um so it worked very well for me i was going to backtrack two seconds and say that you know, back to the um, meeting of the conspiracy, that that was a very good way to pull off a lot of exposition by playing the blame game. Yes. It's like, you did this. Well, you did that. Um, you know, there's no, as you know, Bob, there because they are arguing over whose fault it is. And I thought that was done very well. Good yeah. point. We've talked about Londo's evolution. Let's talk about Veer's for a moment. This is a moment that uh, JMS has been pretty clear about in online commentary that when he was writing the script... 
it was going to be Londo who did the deed right up to the point when all of a sudden Veer taps JMS on the shoulder and says, no, let me. <laughs> and, yeah. and I should do this. Talking about the change from Londo season one to today, the change for Veer from mm-hmm. absolute buffoon to pretty much the conscience of the show. I mean, he was always yeah. somewhat the conscience of the show, but here, I mean, mm-hmm. the guy assassinates the emperor and is in drunken despair afterward. And it's night yeah. and day. It is remarkable what has happened to this character, and it's yeah. completely believable. And to be fair, it, it's like, you know, he didn't quite, it, it wasn't quite intentional on his part. I mean, it was a scuffle. He picks up the weapon, and then all of a sudden, you know, there, and it kind of happens. It's like not even that he did it deliberately, but oh, he still. Oh, he did. He did. I think he did. Um, nah, he didn't have time to think about it, in my opinion. I think, you know, if he'd thought about it, yes, he might have done it anyway, but it was, you know, almost as a result of, you know, just that Cartagena wound up getting launched into him and and the weapon was there and ready to go. So I think, for me, I think that the fact that it was almost accidental as well is, you know, making it just as, you know, keen, you know, maybe more so for Veer, you know, if he's actually wondering, you know, that that it kind of happened so fast and then it was done and, you know, it happened to be my hand on the weapon. What if I'd had to make the decision and do it anyway? Would I have done so? Yeah, I probably would have. And pardon me, I'm going to start drinking now. Um, that, that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that he he had made the decision that Cartagena had to die. So right. he had already, you know, been a part of this no matter what. And I mean, he did have to pick up that weapon. So I think in the moment that he picked up the weapon, he probably was making the decision that yes this is this is something that that I will probably have to do because it's not like he can stop the fight hand it over to Londo and have Londo right. pull, do the deed at that point point. and there also, was a very specific target that he had to hit so not only the specific target but he actually he couldn't just you know hold it up to his chest there was a specific uh like doohickey that he had to release in order to get the blade to come out so i mean it was i do think that it was sort of a not an accidental thing but it was a, a last minute in the heat of the moment kind of a thing mm-hmm. like you could almost maybe you know get him off with what second degree murder or whatever it is instead of first degree because it's not exactly premeditated but mm-hmm. it was premeditated by you know a couple of of minutes long enough for him to definitely feel the the guilt and the grief over oh, yeah. over you know tarnishing his innocence and and having having murdered someone. Ooh. Yeah. And this is just a side note. The physical transformation for Veer from season 1 to season 4 or f- more properly from Stephen First is also kind of noteworthy I think. I don't think it's part of the intentional character arc or anything like that. I mm-hmm. believe that Stephen First uh discovered that he had some health challenges that he had to uh work out and he does not look like the same character that he was yep. in season one. And I yep. think that that actually sort of, it doesn't make him any more imposing, I don't think, because he's still Veer. But mm-hmm. I do like that the physical transformation sort mm-hmm. of uh, happens at the same time that uh, the character transformation happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of like, you know, he's he's this chubby-cheeked, you know, cherubic figure at the beginning. And mm-hmm. when you With think a video about... a in his hand. <laughs> you, you think about all of the 
like a, a, any random regular person who has to go through all of these things that fear has gone through, that is probably going to take its toll on you both mentally and physically because you cannot, you know, extricate one from the other. They're they're both put together. So the idea that Veer has has sort of, you know, lost weight, become a little bit more gaunt and, and you know, it, and I think the, the way that he plays it, he it, it makes him look more haggard looking, which mm-hmm. which seems like it's it's right on point for what this character has gone through. So, yeah, while it, well, it, you know, it was sort of a happy accident that those two things uh, happened at the same time, because we do have sort of a a more. You know, because it's like I wouldn't say, "Hey, Veer's looking svelte." I would say, "Hey, Veer looks like he's been through some rough times." That's that's the way I read it. He looks serious. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the deed is done, and Londo is promptly declared the new prime minister. And I think that that's kind of interesting. Um, the co-conspirators who 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 know exactly what happened and that Cartagia's hearts didn't just go out. They make the play. I think that came as much as a surprise to Londo as to anyone else. Yeah, his reaction to that is great. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, 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 this wasn't part of the plan, fellas. What's what's happening? But because it's in front of all of these witnesses, there's not yep. really anything he can do about it. So um, I, I feel like that also is a bit of an illustration as to how far Londo has come. Because I feel like maybe not so much early Londo, but sort of mid Londo would have snapped at the chance to become prime minister in a heartbeat. Like that would be that would be a thing that he has, has dreamt of. And after all this time, he has seen what what power can do and the dangers of being in a place of power. And at this point, you know, his heart may be empty, but he still just wants to help his people and survive. And that's not always an easy thing to do from the seat of power. So he's a little bit reluctant to take it. And I don't think previous Londo would have felt that reluctance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Signs and portents, Londo, uh, answered Morden's question wanting a rebirth of power and glory and he specifically wanted to feel like he was no longer you know late for an appointment uh he wanted he wanted a rebirth of glory both for his people and for him personally and that was what made mm-hmm. uh morden so very happy then we get to the coming of shadows and emperor turhan dies and rifa uh kills prime minister malachi and their star is on the ascendant and Veer observes that, you know, he could make it, he could be at the royal court now. You could someday become emperor. And Londo says, I'd rather be nope. in, I'd rather yeah. be behind the scenes. This is not where he is now. Mm-hmm. Front and center, Londo. Yep. Be careful what you wish for when a space mob asks you what you want. You might mm-hmm. actually get Indeed. it. Indeed. When this is all over, it's time for fireworks and for Narn to trash the fake throne room. And what a scene for Andreas Katsoulis and Jakar versus the Narn Repertory Company. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Actually, before we jump into his performance, I do just want to point out about the fireworks. Um, I, I I can't remember where it was that I was was talking about this or listening to somebody talking about this. It might have been on The Incomparable about how in every Star Wars movie, as soon as, you know, the victory happens, there's suddenly fireworks. Because apparently every every culture just has a, a cache of fireworks waiting around just in case <laughs> something good happens because immediately you're able to blow them off. I just it seems a little bit funny to me that, yes, that Narn has has fireworks that haven't already been, you know, blasted to, to smithereens in, in some sort sort of attack or something so they're able to celebrate 
Yeah. Yeah, I think they I think they broke into the Centauri stores. <laughs> yeah, probably. There you go. <laughs> Headcanon accepted. <laughs> but what a natural and completely expected reaction for the enslaved Narns to have. Mm-hmm. And what a completely predictable reaction to that Jakar would have after everything that he's been through. And that final thing when the Narn asks him, what have you sacrificed? What have you endured? Which, which those <laughs> of us... face of... I mean, no, not even those of us have seen it, but the face of a guy with a rag tied over the gaping eye socket where an eye used to be. It's like, dude, come on. You're not that stupid. <laughs> when you've got revolutionary rage going on, um, you know, people aren't going to read it correctly. People aren't going to see what he what he endured because he's not saying what they want to hear. And that really, really sucks for Jakar right now. But Well, he's got to sort of win this population of Narn all over again. He's had the chance to bring the Narn that are like out on Babylon 5 and in the station and traveling around who are aware of the wider issues you know, they they have come to his side. This group has not been exposed to him yet and, mm-hmm. and uh, do not know face-to-face. They may know sort of intellectually by hearing news, but they no. do not know they want to make him. They want to make him the dictator. They want him right. to make mm-hmm. him, you know, leader of the counter-assault on Centauri Prime. And, right. and, I, and he will I have none actually- of it. I think that gets to the heart of of why he's asking Jakar what he's endured. Because, yes, you know, the, the Centauri did eventually capture him and, you know, tortured him and paraded him around Narn at the end. But Jakar was not on Narn when all of mm-hmm. this was happening. So, right. he, you know, he, he hasn't actually, you know, if we're talking length of time, he hasn't really had to endure quite the same thing because he was, he had a pretty, you know, comfy, nice candle. He had sanctuary. He was the five. one right. Narn... He was the one Narn in the galaxy who had sanctuary. He and his mm-hmm. uh, followers on B five. Yep. So I mean, the on the surface level, that that Narn Jalan or whatever his name was, uh, he did have a point. Um, but when you actually think about the the true meaning of suffering and the true meaning of endurance, I mean, Jakar has been through a whole lot, and mm-hmm. I I love the idea that he just. There's there's no response to that. There's nothing he can say. So he just sort of mm-hmm. just sort of breaks a little bit and just walks away laughing. One of the most naturalistic laughs I, I think I have, have seen because that's that is such a hard thing to pull off for an actor to to laugh in that particular way without it seeming forced and campy Mm -hmm. and it does not it just right you know sort of mouth gaping like wow great he he delivers that one better than he did the one when um sheridan and delin promised him like right bits of supplies instead of a proper war effort to reclaim narn Mm -hmm. he just sort of walks off sort of Half crying, half crazed, laughing. Um, mm-hmm. This one, this one's a lot more natural. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yep. So, the long night, and it ends as I said before with uh, the space fleet going off to do something or other, and I guess that's <laughs> what we're going to figure out for uh, next week's episode. Uh, but before we talk about next week's episode, any parting thoughts about the long night before uh, we jump into spoiler space? I have uh, two little bitty things that I haven't been able to mention yet. 
I totally got thrown out a second uh, in the story, and this is partly Chip's fault. When they deliver uh, the weapon to Londo that he's going to use to kill Cartagia, and Chip cheerfully goes, "Sonic screwdriver," and then, um, <laughs> and then a few minutes later, between his hearts, it's like, of course they have two hearts. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there was a total Doctor Who thing echoing in the back of my head for a few minutes there. Yeah, you know, actually that that there was one little thing that I mo- noticed that that threw me out, which was a writing thing because we have that moment and we learn, you know, that if we didn't already know that uh, that they have two hearts, but then later on you have Londo talking to Veer in that very touching scene and mm-hmm. saying that you know you still have your heart and your heart is a good one, and mm-hmm. I'm like one. Why would why would Centauri have a saying that says your heart is a good one if they right. if just learned that they have two hearts? So that was just I feel like that was a little somebody in the script editing didn't catch that. So that threw me out for just a second. Yeah, agreed. I I think this is the first time that they've specifically said that um that they have two hearts that I can remember. But mm-hmm. um yeah, we, there's been like you know other organs have been demonstrated, but not that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the other thing that struck me um enough to jot it down well two things actually the fact that even as um they were dragging jakar you know driving him to um to cartage's throne for the trial and execution and you know they're the narns are watching along the way even then jakar is taking a moment to lead his people to to say be strong you know to, to you know it, you can do this you know that, to even to give a pep talk at that point you know, Jakar never never completely loses his focus during this time on helping his people. The Christ um, metaphor is not subtle at all. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> no. No, of course not. Um, and also, I had forgotten that apparently Cartagia had a plan to um, watch Centauri Prime's destruction from above, and he was going to take Londo with him. So, you know, even all this talk about becoming becoming a god, becoming a living god, he hadn't planned to die yet. And I don't know that we'd gotten that stated clearly in previous episodes. So. No, I think Londo was just as surprised about that yeah. as, as we were. Yeah. That, Narcissists that, got a narcissist. In, indeed. You, mm-hmm. When you get to the point of actually, yeah. Well, I can uh, finish up the last of the, the Stephen check-in, although I've mentioned quite a bit of the things that he said. When the, uh, when the episode was over, like there was just sort of a, a moment of silence after the credits had run. And he just said, holy spit. He didn't say spit. Um, <clears throat> he, was, <laughs> he was just just really sort of gobsmacked by this one. Uh, actually, at the very beginning in, our, in the cold open, you know, he's always he's always looking at the direction of the cold open right. so he can play the, the Vehar or not game. And, and he said, you know, he said that first that first scene in CNC didn't really do it. But uh, the, the next one, I can't remember what it was, but we had kind of like a uh, pan around the room and stuff. And uh, <laughs> so oh, it's Londo's secret meeting where we have the camera sort of going around the lighting mm-hmm. is really special uh, and Stephen was like i he's like i don't know i, I feel like my my vehar radar my my vadar uh, is <laughs> is pinging oh, pinging no. a little bit oh, no. so, yes so now it's now it's vadar um yeah so he he was wondering if if maybe it was mike vehar but then 
then no, it's uh, John Lafia, which is a new name he hadn't yes. seen before. He was mm-hmm. very excited by that. And we got to the end and, and he just was like, this direction was fantastic. He really enjoyed it. Uh, he thought John Lafia was really good and is now in his top echelon of, of B5 episode directors with Mike Vehar and Kim Friedman. Um, so so it's, it's always nice to add another name to that list. He, mm-hmm. he really, really, really appreciated it. He actually said that um, this episode, he said, was better than Severed Dreams. He thought this should have won a Hugo. And there were hmm. several scenes that he would now co- count among his favorite in, in all of Babylon 5. The, um, the quiet Londo Jakar scene uh, with their whispering, the, the Brian Cranston scene, uh, way, way up there. He also really loved Jakar's speech at the end about not being a dictator. Um, he liked the voiceover at the end and the, you know, all the ships going off to do something and mm-hmm. the Ivanova and Sheridan scene because he loved Claudia Christian so much. So it was just, this was, it was, this was really fun to watch with Steven because every once in a while I would kind of turn and see what his reaction to things were when we'd have sort of the, the commercial breaks, even though there were no actual commercials, but you get a dip to black for a few seconds. And like after, after Veer committed the, the murder, he just, he just sort of whispered and he's like, oh, Veer. oh it was just it was great so this was this was really fun and i think i think that this particular episode really played toward toward the things that steven likes the most about babylon 5 and and puts those together with some excellent directing and some top-notch performances and and yeah so afterwards he was like steven was like what's what's my favorite episode do i have a favorite episode i'm like no you haven't declared one that's that's your favorite just your least favorite he's like okay well i guess that's that's good he's like i hope i don't sound too i can't remember what he said too negative because i have a, the least favorite and not a favorite i'm like no that's all right it's, it just means you like lots of things that's good yeah so so yeah we are we are on a on a roll he's very excited to watch the next episode and at the beginning of this one he actually asked me what what exactly is sheridan's plan like what what are they what are they planning to do are they going to attack zaha doom and i said i was actually like um I don't actually remember because I couldn't remember like what, what the plan was. And then I was like, okay, so Delenn's original plan was to attack Zaha Doom. And then they haven't actually laid out what the new plan is now that Sheridan and Lorian are back from Zaha Doom. So I was like, don't worry. I'm pretty sure we haven't missed anything. And, and yes, based on what you guys have said, that Sheridan has not laid out his whole plan. He's just sort of, we know that the shadows are going to be a part of it now. And that's about as far as we've gotten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what comes next? Well, we'll find out next time in episode 71, which covers Into the Fire. Erica will be steering the ship on that one. You can find all of our episodes at b5audioguide.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. All one word, no punctuation, no capital letters, no spell down. You know, it's it's just what it says <laughs> on the tin, people. Uh, we love hearing from you on the comment threads at b5audioguide.com. Uh, some really great stuff that's happening there. We really appreciate your, not just your listening, but your interaction. Um, so keep it up, folks. We appreciate it. Wait, what's that? I do believe it's a jump gate. Spoilers ahead. Hey, it's been a long episode. Uh, Let's see if we can power through the spoiler section fairly quickly. The Shadow War ends next episode. It's all over. It's all done. Mm -hmm. Boom. Bang. 
we get it we get it all except and for the mess yeah it's well the mess afterward which is uh the remaining uh year and a half of babylon five episodes um mm-hmm. i'll be interested to see what steven thinks about the denouement um and uh whether we think as we watch it it's rushed or just proper um you know We've known that this was accelerated due to the question of whether or not uh, B5 would get renewed for a fifth season. So I'll be interested to see how how that shakes itself out. Yeah, Stephen is, um, I mean, he he's aware that at this point in real time that they weren't sure if they were going to get a fifth season. So I think he kind of knows that there's some acceleration going on. And he even afterwards expressed some 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 worry about, you know, what was going to happen with that. Uh, you know, what, what's the fifth season going to be like then? Was, he's like, is it like a Blake 7 thing where they did, weren't supposed to have another season and suddenly they've got one? And they're like, what are we going to do with this? And I was just <laughs> like, I shrugged at him. I was just like, you'll find out. Yep. Yep. One of the other uh, things that happens here, um, Lando's Ascension to prime minister it's getting him closer and closer and closer to that which he really doesn't want he's going to be emperor someday yep Mm -hmm. and uh he's just sort of uh being dragged along he is possibly falling toward apotheosis himself in a sense (laughs) i'm just saying um a couple of things that struck me um and I would have to go forward and look at the Lurker's Guide to remind myself exactly what happens in the episode. But I could not help thinking about the title, The Long Night. And in season five, we have The Very Long Night of Londo Malari. Yes, so. I thought about that, too. <laughs> so that that was something that made me focus, especially on Londo's role in this episode. You know, that just feels like... Like, those two episodes ought to be linked somehow. And like I said, I'm going to have to go forward and, like, read a synopsis or watch it to, yeah. to know whether I'm right or not. Well, that is the episode where we where we see a vision. Lando has a, Lando has a heart's attack. And, okay. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and while he is uh, in his delirium, he has a bunch of uh, fantasy sequences, including a scene of uh, Jakar dressed as Cartagia having Londo whipped. And uh, Andreas Katsoulis mm. is just lovely riffing off of Wortham Krimmer there. And, <laughs> um, and the whole point of that episode is uh, Londo apologizing, actually apologizing for the first time to Jakar. You come out of this episode and you'd almost expect that Londo and Jakar having done each other a solid would be, uh, you know, a lesser show would have had them just sort of make buddy buddy right then and there. And that's not anywhere near that easy. Mm-hmm. So, we, right. we, so we do get a really good arc of rapprochement between Londo and Jakar, and then ultimately friendship. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I can, uh, uh, oh, 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 completing that arc with the point when Londo, just before Londo becomes emperor and gets a keeper slapped on his neck, when Jakar says, I can never forgive your people, but I can forgive you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is good stuff in season five, people. There really yep. is. There Here is. and there, yes. <laughs> yeah, something else that struck me, um, the shadow attack, the planet killer version on the shadow side, um, had me thinking forward to Crusade and, and how yep. the shadow's yep. minions and allies um, act, how they attack and 
basically how how they attack other planets. Yeah, this very kind of uh, shadow planet killer will be. The Drak will attempt to use it against the Earth in the Babylon 5 movie A Call to Arms, which also served as the pilot for Crusade. And uh, the Drak will fail, but they've got a backup plan, which uh, kicks off the five-year plot of Crusade. Oh, wait, it, it got canceled. Yeah. Uh, we uh, also, this is a great stepping point on Veer's arc. There's a direct line from video game playing Veer at the beginning of the first season to uh, regicidal Veer in this episode to Veer picking up a sword and attacking Adrazi at a food stall to make a point when he's pretty much auditioning to become the new uh, Centauri ambassador to Babylon 5 towards the end of season 5 to Emperor Veer in bed with a couple of Centauri ladies and sleeping in light. So love that arc. Love that arc. <laughs> That's great. Oh, any other spoilery things or things to look forward to at the end? Um, you know, we know what Sheridan's plan is. We know exactly how it's going to go down. Um, I do like that we get some of those hints that ever since he came back with Lorian, th this has been his plan all along. And will that? I like that they're just like it's one of those things where it's almost like a magician. You're sort of being distracted by what's happening over here, so you don't necessarily take the time to to think too hard about what the actual plan is. I mean, Stephen is astute enough that he asked, "Wait, what are they doing?" But but then I think by the end of the episode, he had sort of forgotten about that and just you know, ooh, pretty ships, look at them go. So <laughs> is this adequate build up to the point where? People reacted in very different ways to now get the hell out of our galaxy. That was either the perfect ultimate uh, rejection of uh, the Borlons and the Shadows, or it was just a really stupid line. There's no betwixt and between. I wonder if we have gotten enough build up towards that moment in this season. You know, I, I think that the fact that we are watching it every, well, actually every two weeks, but, uh, you know, but somewhat similar to the way it would be in real time is going to be helpful because it gives us time for, you know, if, even though everything's happening really fast and Stephen even commented on how Cartagia was only in there for five episodes, that it feels like it's a little bit longer because we have longer to sit with it in our minds. And I feel like if Babylon 5, if we were marathoning it and watching like an episode every day, I feel like the get the hell out of our galaxy might feel a little bit silly and unearned, you know, or at least skew towards that side a little bit more. But the fact that we've had a little bit more time every couple of weeks to 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 watch the change in Sheridan, that it'll be okay. And I, we were talking about season five. I actually feel like this, this is going to work against season five in that, um, and I, I say this because I just finished watching uh, all seven seasons of the Gilmore Girls and season seven of Gilmore Girls is kind of similar to season five of Babylon 5 in that received fan wisdom is that it sucks and that it's just not, not as good. And I did think that when I was watching the show in real time and and I didn't like season seven at all and I was kind of ignoring it and pretending it didn't happen. But watching it in more of a binge fashion every, you know, an episode every day or two, season seven of Gilmore Girls feels fine because you don't have all that time in between the episodes to kind of realize, oh, not a lot's happening, not a lot's going on. <laughs> Whereas I, I feel like it's going to... to you know, if if we were to watch Babylon Five episode or season five, an episode every day, and podcast about it, we'd 
we might feel a little bit more kindly toward it than doing it every other week. And I'm not suggesting that we actually go to a daily podcast. Good Lord. I'm just saying that that the way in which you consume a show can actually have an effect on the the way that we receive it. So I think oh, yeah. that the way we're doing it is probably the best for that particular line that you were asking about, Chip. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just thinking Sherlock fandom at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, a question for another time. Is Babylon 5 bingeable television? Because we're totally not binging it. Um, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a question for another time. Uh, anything else in the future episodes realm? I think we've covered most everything. Not for me. Can't think of anything else at the moment. Then we end the Shadow War next time. And then people are just sort of left asking what comes next. And that will be, you know, a a lot of empire building um, and a lot of cleanup and a lot of repercussions and a lot of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. That's on down the road. Uh, So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next time for the end of the Shadow War. Until then, this is Chip and Durham. Erica and Edmonton. And Shannon and Durham. You have been listening to the audio guide to Breaking Bad. I mean, to Babylon 5.